His and Hers Horror features two adults discussing horror movies, serial killers, and other spooky content that may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to His and Hers Horror. My name is Tia. And I'm David. And this week we're covering another director. Yes, we are. We've done John Carpenter. Yep. Who is an icon. Mm-hmm. Clyde Barker, also an icon. Yes. And I decided I wanted to take a look at someone who was maybe a little newer. Sure. But still pretty influential in the genre so far. You are the queen of understatements. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> I think he's a little more than a little influential in well, in the current horror when you, scene. When you think new new horror directors that are being influential, you've got Jordan Peele, Robert Eggers, Mike Flanagan, Mike Flanagan, Nia DaCosta, yeah. mm-hmm. and then you have our subject for today, Ari Aster. Mm-hmm. So before we get into the movies, yes. Again, he only has two feature films out right now. Right. He is only slightly younger than me, mm-hmm. which I'm still not sure how I feel. <laughs> yeah, he was born in, what, June or July of 86? Uh, July 15th of 86. Damn, I'm good. I know, good job. In New York, mm-hmm. New York, New York. And his family actually moved to New Mexico when he was 10. Apparently, his love of horror films, like you started when he was a kid. There's actually a couple of things that he has said that I'm like, this fits David also. After reading one of his AMAs, I'm like, same mindset, same page. Yeah. On things. Uh, So this is one quote I have from uh, when he, he's talking about horror movies, getting into them when he was a kid. Mm -hmm. I just exhausted the horror section of every video store I could find. I didn't know how to assemble people who would cooperate on something like that. And I found myself just writing screenplays. Hmm, Nice. Mm Mm-hmm. Got his BA from the College of Santa Fe in 2004 and his MFA from the AFI Conservatory. Oh, cool. In 2010. Neat. Some of his film influences include uh, Rosemary's Baby, Mm -hmm. Fanny and Alexander, Persona, Mm -hmm. The Thing, The Age of Innocence, Mm -hmm. In the Mouth of Madness, Eight and a Half. Makes sense. And Repulsion. That makes sense. And also he added another one in his AMA that I read and that was Happiness. Really? Yeah, he loves that director. And that movie. Look, it is a tough watch. It really is, yeah. But it's one of those movies that unabashedly says, okay, we're going to talk about some rough stuff, so sit down, grab a drink. Here we go. Yeah, it's not a comfortable Sunday afternoon watch. <laughs> no. Mm-mm. But yeah. Tony Collette mm-hmm. has actually called uh, Ari Aster the most prepared director she's ever worked with. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. She specifically praised him for practically having the entirety of Hereditary already shot and edited in his head two years before they ever started filming. So there was no wasted time. No, no. He's like severe, like storyboards out all of his shit. He knows exactly how he wants shots, shots to look. He knows how he wants to do things months before they even have a crew or a cast or a look like he plans his shit out far in advance so that once he gets there everything can go the way he wants it to go cool which i just i think is kind of cool that is cool there's one other quote that he has that i think you will identify with at least to some extent hit me 
When people ask if I consider myself a horror director, I'll be quick to respond with a very clear no, absolutely not. Because there are so few horror films that for me live up to what the genre can do. That epidemic has given the genre a bad name. It's one of those genres that if its virtues are being effectively exploited, can be just the most amazing experience in a theater. When they work, I get very excited. Yeah. And also from that AMA I read, he's one of those directors and writers that he looks at the negative comments and takes those personally. Like he takes stuff to heart. Takes stuff to heart. And so like hearing negatives is very much kind of like when I get feedback on something, I go, okay, Mm -hmm. you won't see that again. Problem solved. Roger that. Yeah. So giving him the three positives and a negative wouldn't even matter because he wouldn't remember the positives. He would just remember the one negative. (laughs) He would just say, okay, so make it a little shorter. Oh, that's so sad. Well, this stuff is good. Right, but I think that... It's so smart. I I feel like that folds nicely, though, into that meticulous timing thing, because Mm -hmm. he's going, okay, praise, 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 sure, that means nothing. It's kind of like like when someone says, you know, well, what did you think of the movie? It's good. That doesn't tell me anything. Mm -hmm. Now, if you say, it's beautifully shot, okay, now I've got something to look forward to. Or the score absolutely slaps. I, you know, something like that inspires me to go see a movie. Hearing, oh, it's good and not too long. You know what else is good and not too long? A McDonald's cheeseburger? Yeah, sure. I don't know what you were going to say. I don't either. That's why I was asking. (laughs) All right, so let's get into the movies. And we're going to cover them in order of release. Mm -hmm. It just seems smart to do it that way. Yeah. So let's talk about Hereditary. Yes. From 2018. And both of these, I mean, obviously both of these were directed by Ari Aster. He also Mm -hmm. wrote both of them. Mm -hmm. So we won't be including that in our film breakdowns. We'll just be skipping right to the cast. Right. So cast, Tony Collette as Annie Graham robbed for this film. She did so fucking good and is so great. Mm. She deserved at least an Oscar nomination, if not the fucking statue. Fair. She's amazing. Mm-hmm. She was Joni in Knives Out. Uh, she's been in a ton of other stuff. I mean, she's Tony Collette. Right. Gabriel Byrne is Steve Graham. Mm-hmm. We mentioned him previously on the show. He was uh, Murphy in Ghost Ship. Yes, yes. He was also in uh, Point of No Return with Bridget Fonda. That was the first time I ever saw him. So oh, that's okay. What, that that's that's <laughs> little was, pin in my head that says. Hmm, I was sure you were going to say Stigmata. Oh well, that was later. Right. I just that's the other film that I think of when I think of Gabriel Byrne is Stigmata. Fair enough, but the name's not important. That's fair. Wait, huh? Sorry, it's a line from Stigmata. Only I translated it from. Oh, right. Okay. No, never mind. We'll cover that film at some point, I'm sure. Sure. Alex Wolf is Peter Graham. One of the other things he's been in that's most recently, it's pretty easily recognizable, is uh, the new Jumanji movies. He's Spencer. Okay. Millie Shapiro is Charlie Graham. Mm hmm. Anne Dowd is Joan. I fucking love her. She's Aunt Lydia on The Handmaid's Tale. Yes. Kathleen Chalfant is Ellen Tapper Lee. She is uh, Agnes in Old, the new M. Night Shyamalan movie that Mm -hmm. we haven't seen yet. Budget of $10 million. Mm -hmm. Box office of 80.2. Nice. It's actually A24's highest grossing film worldwide. I don't know if it still is. Uh, I couldn't find anything that said it wasn't. So as far as I know, this is still their biggest grossing film. A24, pretty solid. Yeah, their stuff tends to be pretty good. Mm-hmm. With like a couple of exceptions. Like I did not like, I think they released It Comes at Night. Mm-hmm. And I was not a fan of that. But anyway, so let's get into the plot. Yeah. We are introduced to the Graham family. Mm-hmm. Annie and Steve live in Utah with their kids. Peter is 16. Charlie is 13. 
and Annie's mom, Ellen, has just died. Yeah, it actually opens with the obituary. Yeah. And there's a lot of weird people at the funeral. Mm-hmm. Because that's even something Annie notes in, at the beginning of her eulogy is that she's seeing a lot of unfamiliar new faces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people she's not familiar with, but she also mentions that her mom... Was kept, a very private person. Kept very secretive friends and... Yeah. Yeah, she was not the type to share a lot, apparently. Which I get. Sure. Annie is kind of struggling mm-hmm. off and on, I think, with her grief because she and her mom didn't have the best relationship. So she goes to the support group, like one of those grief counseling support groups. Right, for people who've recently lost a loved one. Right, yeah. exactly. And she kind of reveals that she and her mom had a very strained relationship. And we also learn a lot about Annie's family's background. Yes, we do. And it's a lot. So Annie's mom had disassociative identity disorder. Mm-hmm. And later it developed, she ended up with dementia. Mm-hmm. Annie's father had psychotic depression. Yeah, which, is that a, is that a thing? I don't so- know if that's a thing. Basically, he, he was so psychotically depressed. So or... depressed that he basically didn't eat and ended up starving to death. Yeah. And then her brother, Annie's older brother, was also named Charlie, mm-hmm. was schizophrenic and mm-hmm. actually ended up killing himself when he was 16. Oh, wow. And... Yeah. I don't know why I'm saying, oh, wow. I was sitting there well, watching I mean, it, too. Yeah, I know. Well, and one of the, one of the things that... Um, Annie says there that actually makes sense when you think about it later mm-hmm. is in the suicide note, her brother blamed their mom for quote, trying to put voices inside of him. Yeah. Which just sounds like the writing of someone who's troubled. Right. But it will make sense later. Yes. And we'll talk about it. So Peter seems just like your average 16 year old kid. Yeah. Smokes weed. He has a guitar, hangs out in his room a lot. Generally bright, you know. Yeah. Or at least he seems to be. Seems to be a smart kid. Charlie, however, is a little odd. I'm not sure if she has if she has a developmental disorder. Maybe I'm just exactly. not interested in the bullshit. Well, they never really say. Yeah. But she doesn't really talk much. Um, she makes this weird clicking sound with her tongue. Stop it. Sorry. Every time you do that, it freaks me out. And that was a quiet one, too. That w- well, it wasn't quiet because there's a microphone right in front of you. Oh, well. But we see her at school and a bird flies into the window and she takes the teacher's scissors and cuts the head off the bird, mm-hmm. which is really weird. And then puts the bird's head in her pocket. Yes, she does. A couple months later, mm-hmm. Peter is invited to this guy Aaron's house for a party. <laughs> and he really wants to go. That invite text is just so cringe. Oh, my God. Aaron's having a party tomorrow. Bring your dick. It's such a teenage boy, kind of. I feel like that's I don't know. the kind of... I, I didn't have a phone in high school. I know. I'm sure it's very... I'm old. We Yes. <laughs> I had a track phone. It was for emergencies only. But no, it's... It's very much your stereotypical teenage party where there's no adults there. They've somehow gotten their hands on some alcohol. Peter's going to bring some weed. And he lies to Annie about the party. And he's like, yeah, it's a, it's like a school barbecue or whatever. I'm, yeah. I'm going to eat with you guys. Uh, and then I'm just going to go there to hang out. Yeah, just be for a little bit, you know. And she's she's like, well, take. does your sister want to go? Why don't you take your sister with you? And I feel kind of bad for Charlie because she does not want to go. Yeah. 
Annie essentially forces Peter to take Charlie to a party Charlie does not want to go to. Right. Which, don't do that to your kids, (laughs) y'all. Just let them be who they want to be. If they don't want to go to the party, don't make them go to the party. Yeah. So once they get to this party, which I don't know how far away this is. I've never been to Utah. Is Utah just vast like that? Can be in places. In some places. Yeah. The family seems to... they're, They're not living in an urban area. But they live close enough to town or whatever... That Peter can bike back and forth to school. Right. And they live close enough to town that Annie can get supplies and be back in 20 minutes. So I would imagine they probably take their road to yeah. know, something that shoots off. But there doesn't seem to be a whole lot around their home. I mean, it's relatively isolated, which actually looks rather lovely. It looks nice. Yeah, lots of really pretty uh, birch trees. Yeah. Once they get to the party, Peter very quickly kind of ditches Charlie for you know a cute girl and he's got the weed mm-hmm. and charlie somehow unknowingly eats cake with nuts in it yeah because the nut allergy is alluded to actually at the towards the tail end of the funeral at the very beginning but she's like eating a chocolate bar and steve is like does that have nuts in it and she goes no and then annie goes does that have nuts in it because we don't have an EpiPen." and she's like no it's fine right And that's one thing that I see throughout the movie is instead of there being like even a line of exposition saying, hey, you have a nut allergy. Did you check? It's just naturally implied. It's it's brought in naturally. So mad props there for for being like, okay, I'm concerned because I don't see anybody. There's no supervision. There's no. Now, granted, Charlie probably should have said, hey, does this have nuts? And someone probably would have been like, these nuts because they're older kids. Yeah. Yeah, I have some thoughts about that that I'll get into after, because I don't want to get into a whole big thing Fair. Right, in, right now. So Charlie goes and finds Peter and is like, my th- she says, my throat feels like it's getting bigger. Right. And she's clearly just been sitting dealing with an increased anaphylactic reaction mm-hmm. for I'm not sure how long. Because they show her after she's she's eaten the cake. And it's clear when she's, before she's even finished it, she's like, mm, something's weird. And then gets water. And she gets some water, she sits down for a little while, and then eventually she goes and looks for Peter. Right. And he realizes, oh shit, something's really fucking wrong. Right. So he is very high and panicking and tries to drive Charlie to the hospital. My interpretation of it was that that probably harshed his high and he's just racing home because he's responsible for his little sister. Well, because he says he's taking her to the hospital. Yeah. He says we're, yeah. Or to the hospital, whatever the case. It's oh shit time. And usually oh shit time can harsh it. And this is one of the most shocking parts of the film, Mm -hmm. especially on a first time watch. So Charlie's in the back seat. She's struggling to breathe. Mm Mm-hmm. And she rolls down the window and sticks her head out the window to try and and get more air. And Peter swerves to avoid hitting a deer in the road. And Charlie gets decapitated by a pole Mm -hmm. on the side of the road. And Peter, in complete shock, as far as I can tell, drives home with her body in the backseat of the car and then just goes to bed. Yeah, he briefly glances up at the rearview mirror and then immediately averts away Yeah, and just starts driving. And it's like, I mean, you you can't glue that back on. Yeah. Now, I have two thoughts Mm -hmm. about this whole trail of events. Okay. Who bakes a cake at a party? Mm. Because this 
No, 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 no. Because there were girls making it when they show up. There oh, were a yeah. bunch of teenage girls because one of them was very dangerously chopping walnuts. Oh, that's right. Her, her knife skills are terrible. Yeah. And this party is at some guy named Aaron's house. So these girls just decided to make a multi-layer chocolate and walnut cake in some other guy's kitchen in the middle of a party. I mean, did they show up like 45 minutes before to prepare and then and then just bake a cake? I have no idea. It's the weird. It's one of the weirdest things about this movie. And that's saying something. Because hmm. I've been to a lot of parties over the years. I have never been to a party where someone was baking in the middle of everyone else getting high and drinking. Right. Because if you're going to be putting anything in the oven, it'd be like, you know, pizzas or wings or, you know. Snack. Snacky hot, like, stuff. Like hot snacks. Yeah. Not a two layer chocolate cake. Yeah. That's uh, that's a good point. Thank you. It's I weird. Didn't, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Here I am looking at symbols and sigils and shit, and you're going, who bakes a cake? It, it's weird, is what I'm saying. Fair. Yeah. Here's my other thing. Mm-hmm. So when Peter gets home and he's walking up to his room, we can hear Annie and Steve talking. Mm-hmm. So they are still awake. I have a younger sibling. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're two years apart. Mm-hmm. So if I, at 16, had been forced to take her to a party, she would have been 14, mm-hmm. and I had come home without her, there would be questions. Yeah. Even if we did come home together, there would still be questions. My mom would be like, hey, how was the party? Did you guys have a nice time? That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Just the general kind of conversation. It, there wouldn't be a looking out the window and being like, oh, I guess they're home. Time to go to bed. Mm. Like, well, I don't know. It bothers me. Well, the family's relatively fractured, and it's almost like they don't trust themselves or each other to really communicate well. Yeah, that is true. Now, granted, that's not an excuse for not checking on your kids, but... Yeah. It's already broken before this point, and it just continues to fracture. Yeah, well, because Annie makes a point multiple times of asking Peter, you're not going to drink, are you? You're not going to drink, are you? And then forces him to take his younger sister to the party... So you would think when they got home, she would want to check on them and make sure they're both okay. Yeah. which And, and in honesty, he didn't drink. He smoked pot. He so. smoked weed and killed his sister. Okay. I say his sister killed herself. Okay. We'll get into that because, again, I have thoughts. <laughs> okay. So, unfortunately, because this is the way that Peter decides to go about things, mm-hmm. Annie is the one who finds the body in the next morning in the backseat of the car. Yeah. She's going to run, run to town real quick. Yeah. And there's her decapitated her daughter decapitated in the backseat. decapitated daughter in the backseat. And of course she is devastated. Like, inconsolable. Which you would be. Yeah. Peter kind of... He gravitates between being depressed and feeling guilty and, like, disassociating pretty heavily. And it becomes clear very quickly that Annie blames Peter, but at the same time doesn't want to say anything. Mm, yeah. Maybe and she has some fear of coming across like her mom. That's true. That's a possibility that I hadn't even thought of until now. Yeah. And Steve is just kind of stuck in the middle, unfortunately. Yeah. Because, again, this family doesn't really communicate that well. Which, you know, a point you brought up, you know, when we were watching it was uh, he's a a psychiatrist, right? He is a psychiatrist, yes. But we'll we'll get into some of my thoughts on on their communication skills because... Yeah, I I also have that in my final thoughts on this film. Cool. So Annie becomes friends with this woman named Joan that she meets at a support group. Mm -hmm. And Joan eventually teaches Annie how to do a seance. Mm -hmm. And I love that Annie, when she tries it, she's like, I did it 20 minutes ago and it worked. 
but now I need you guys to do it too. Yeah, she's like waking him up and shit to do it. Yeah, and then she calls, she says, I'm a medium, and I'm like, just, bitch, holding a seance does not make you a fucking medium. There's more to it than that. Well, and typically a medium is someone who allows, mm-hmm. you know, something to pass through and communicate with, which she actually winds up doing, but... Yeah, she convinces, wakes them up in the middle of the night and convinces Peter and Steve to do this seance with her to try and talk to Charlie. And... It, it does work, we think. There are results. There are results. The glass that they're using moves. The candle flares. The candle flares and then goes out and then relights itself. Mm-hmm. There's some glass that breaks. Yeah. And then eventually Annie starts talking in Charlie's voice. Mm-hmm. Which kind of upsets Peter. Which very, very much, which it would, honestly. Yeah. If your mom started talking in your dead sister's voice, it would freak you the fuck out. Yeah. And Steve eventually is just like, fuck this shit and splashes water on her. <laughs> yeah, after checking under the table to make sure it hasn't somehow been rigged in the middle of the night to yeah. cause stuff to move and flare. Yeah. I know, I know, it's weird. The uber skeptic. Yeah, I have problems with Steve, but anyway. Mm. So after this, Peter starts having these supernatural experiences. Mm-hmm. In particular, he's at school mm-hmm. and he kind of, he's, he keeps hearing that clicking sound that Charlie used to make. Yes. And there's one day where he keeps hearing it and then he turns to look at his reflection in some glass and his reflection is staring at him and like smirking. But he's not smiling. But he's not smiling. Nope. N- Peter doesn't smile anymore. <laughs> Uh, There's an instance where he and his friends are smoking some weed underneath the bleachers and he starts having some sort of a weird reaction and saying it feels like his throat's getting bigger. Right. Like what happened with Charlie. Yeah, reminiscent of that experience. So Annie starts to suspect that Charlie's spirit has become malevolent because she's still convinced it is Charlie's spirit. It's not, but she's convinced it is. So she tries to burn the conduit that she used, which was Charlie's little sketchbook. Right. And it contains all these images that appear to be threats against Peter. Right. But when she goes to burn it, her clothes catch on fire. And she's kind of starting to realize maybe I've been lied to or maybe I haven't been given all of the information. She was pretty quick on the uptake where when she tried to pat her arm out. Mm-hmm. She realized it wasn't working, so she pulled the pulled the sketchbook out, got that put out, and her arm was fine. Yeah. that That's smart thinking. You don't always see that. In- that is true. Yeah. So she goes to ask Joan for help, but Joan has disappeared. Mm-hmm. And we, the audience, get to see inside Joan's apartment. Yes. And we see that she has the same symbol that was on... Annie's necklace and her mom's necklace mm-hmm. and, and in, in various other places. It's on her wall. And then we see what looks like some sort of ritual triangle and other stuff on the table with Peter's picture inside of it. Yeah, sort of an altar set up. Right. With some sort of spell work being done. Yeah. But then we get to see Annie kind of something click in her brain because she looks down at the welcome mat in front of Joan's door. Mm-hmm. And she had previously remarked, oh, my mom used to embroider stuff like that. And Joan was like, oh, isn't that, isn't that interesting? I like just... Uh, yeah, and brushes it off. Brushes it off. And that's when Annie decides to do a little bit of investigating. In other words, going through her mom's shit in a box. Which she should have done. She should have done previously, but 
considering that she was talking about how, oh, my mom was a private person. She even said during the eulogy, it feels like a betrayal to stand up here and talk about her mm. because she was such a private person. So yeah, Annie does finally go and look through her mom's stuff. And she finds books on Paimon, who we've covered in our Demons episode. Yeah, Demonic Possession episode. And she also finds pictures of her mom and some of the people she didn't recognize from the funeral mm-hmm. in in pictures with Joan. Yeah. And it turns out that her mom was essentially the leader of this... Paimonist cult. Paimonist cult. And so they worshipped this demon... And Ellen has been trying to secure a male host for him for years. Yeah. In exchange for riches and rewards. Which in- includes things like, you know, unknown knowledge. And it's not just, you know, gold and, and bags of jewels. It, it, can, mm-hmm. it can also be power and other things in return for service. It's open to interpretation. Yeah. It could even be control of other people. Yeah. Uh, so after failed attempts with her own son... And not being allowed around Peter when he was a baby, mm-hmm. Ellen was forced to conjure Paimon through Charlie. But because Paimon prefers a male host, Charlie's death and the seance basically were intended to open the way for Paimon to possess Peter. Right. So there you go. Meanwhile, at school, Peter's seeing more weird shit. Yup. He sees... I didn't realize this the first time we watched that we watched that movie, mm-hmm. but it's Joan across yeah. the street from his school doing some kind of ritual to cast Peter out of his own body. Yeah, she's trying to do a banishing spell on Peter to kick him out so, so that Paimon can enter. Yeah, I mean, imagine that being evicted out of your own body. Jeez, no respect. That is such a. <laughs> It's a really good thing that most of the people who listen to the podcast are people our age that would know who the fuck Rodney Dangerfield is. Because I can guarantee anyone below us, anyone in one of any lower demographics have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. Except Jabberjaw borrowed bits from Rodney Dangerfield. They also don't know who Jabberjaw is, David. Oh, fair enough. (laughs) you talking about jabberjaw was before my time oh yeah well like i said earlier in the in the episode i'm getting old oh my gosh anyway one of the other things that happens to peter is i don't know if some sort of weird pseudo possession i don't know what exactly happens but he essentially temporarily loses control of his own body yeah and slams his face into his desk and breaks his nose Mm mm-hmm The school tries to call Annie, but because she's being weird. And noping out of things. Yeah, she doesn't answer the phone, so Steve has to go get him. Steve and Peter get home, and Peter goes right up to bed, because he's probably on a lot of painkillers, because he broke his fucking nose. Yeah. And Annie tells Steve what she learned, which includes her mother's dead body being in their attic. Well, I mean, Tell is a very straightforward way to put it It, the way she tells it Mm -hmm. you know psychiatrist or not yeah she delivers this information in such a manic way that i'd be like all right look you need to sit down you need medical attention because something ain't right yeah it's well because various points through the movie they've been commenting about a weird smell in the house Mm -hmm. and 
about a week after her funeral, Ellen's grave was desecrated mm-hmm. and her corpse went missing. Right. Well, now we know where it's been the whole time. It's been in Annie's attic. <laughs> and Steve thinks that Annie has been the one doing all this because she's mentally ill, which I'm like, this, this, this. is the thing, <laughs> this is the thing. Not trying to immolate your children. I know. She, I'm like, dude, she wants while sleepwalking, covered herself and your children in paint thinner and was going to light them on fire. The only reason she didn't succeed is because Peter woke up and screamed and that woke her up. Like, what the fuck, my dude? Like, why is this, this the thing that finally makes you say my wife needs help? Again, I I would say he's probably a psychiatrist that is too close to the situation and doesn't want to admit there's a problem. That's entirely fair. Doctors make the worst patients and psychiatry is a type of medicine, so... Annie tells Steve that when they conjured Charlie, she wanted some sort of revenge. So he needs to burn the sketchbook because she she can't. She's worried that she can't. Well, and and she kind of evolves that statement into saying, you need you need to burn it because when I tried to burn it, it lit me on fire. Well, and she says she knows that once that starts burning, she will, too. Yeah, that's what she thinks is you need to do this because once she's like, it's going to be hard because I know it's going to kill me, but I need you to do this to save Peter. Yeah. And again, he says, you need help. You're sick and refuses to burn it. So she grabs it and throws it into the fire and Steve spontaneously combusts. Like it's not a little bit like when her sleeve caught fire, he goes up like Christmas. Yeah. Yeah, he does. And then there's this switch flip that happens where you see that there's like a weird light that you see a couple times throughout the film. Mm -hmm. And you kind of see it flow in on Annie and then she's just dead eyes. Yeah. And at this point, she is possessed by Paimon. Yeah. Sometime later, Mm -hmm. we don't know how long later... There's a quick transition and it goes from like daytime to nighttime. Yeah, it's it's absolutely gorgeous. It's like it it's like waiting four hours in Skyrim. It's beautiful. It's basically like a switch flip. Yeah. Kinda. It's not a slow transition where the light fades. Fair. Yeah. And I almost like that better for this kind of thing. Oh yeah. Peter wakes up mm-hmm. and that's when we get this the section of the movie where I say my catchphrases a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Because uh, mom's hanging out. Literally. So he wakes up, does not see. Annie is in like the top corner of his bedroom, just watching him, waiting for him to wake up. And that's when I did my fuck that. She's in the northwest corner of the room. Oh, is she? I think so. Yeah. Based on based on the way I saw the light in the movie. But okay. I mean, that that's anyway. a half ass guess. But still, anyway. But Peter goes to investigate. She kind of is following him around, but he doesn't know it. Yeah, because she's like, like, uh, dancing on the ceiling. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, not quite, but yeah. He finds his dad's charred corpse. And I do love that the arms were in boxer position, which mm-hmm. is suppo- supposedly very typical for burned bodies. Yes. Sorry. True crime. Uh, anyway. And then a possessed Annie just kind of starts chasing him through the house. Yeah, and she became a track star. It's terrifying. My, I will say, probably the scariest part for me is when he gets up into the attic and he hears the pounding and then we go to see and she's on the ceiling on her hands and knees, like rapidly pounding her head into the opening of the attic. 
Yeah. Or onto the where the opening the, would the trap be. Door. The trap door. Yeah. Yeah. There. Yeah. One other thing that is in this scene is every once in a while you will see a naked person. Yes, uh, the smiling naked guy. The by smiling the way. naked guy downstairs is the creepiest one because having a random naked person in your house is one thing; having them smile at you wide-eyed is worse. <laughs> and that's the second time in the movie we see him because we see him at the funeral, smiling at Charlie. Smiling at Charlie, yeah. So he clearly is smiling at. Well, yeah, because that their whole plan is to get Paimon inside of Peter. That's the goal. Yes. So, sorry, this is where the movie gets kind of wild. Peter hears a sound in the attic, and mm-hmm. he turns, and it's Annie floating above him using some piano wire to essentially saw her own head off. Yes. And then he hears a sound like to the left of him, and he looks, and there's three old naked people that are just like, hey, what's up? And he screams and jumps out the window. Yeah. Now he jumps, he lands, the landing doesn't kill him, but it's very obvious that at this point... Peter is gone. Yeah, th- because typically with possessions, the the body either needs to be given over willingly, or... It's a breaking down of the house. Yeah, or involuntarily. Yeah, so Annie's headless corpse, mm-hmm. that's the shadow that we see pass over his body is her yes. corpse, floats to Charlie's treehouse. Mm-hmm. The light that had possessed her goes into Peter, and then he just kind of slowly gets up. Mm -hmm. He makes that clicking noise that Charlie used to make. Yep. And goes into the treehouse to find Joan and the other cult members, as well as the corpses of his mom and his grandmother. Both without heads. Both without heads. There's a statue that's like a mannequin with Charlie's severed head on the top. And it's wearing a crown and there's like a pi- the Paimon sigil is, char- is mm-hmm. carved into the chest. So Joan removes the crown from Charlie's head, puts it on Peter's head, and they essentially swear fealty to him as Paimon. Yes. They're like, we fixed, our- we fixed the mistake with your original host. We got you a healthy male body, which I'm like, how healthy are we talking? Because his nose is broken and like his eye is bleeding. So. <laughs> Superficial. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And essentially, that's the end of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. So you were able to, I know we've talked about this movie before, but mm-hmm. some of the, most of their shit was actually pretty accurate when it came to how Paimon, the whole thing with Paimon, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Especially right at the tail end of the movie, you know, they, Joan's got some bits that she says, and I'm sitting here checking off boxes, you know, whoever summons Paimon has to do it towards the, you know, Northwest because that's where he resides checked off all of the key points you know Mm -hmm. can bring great familiars and hidden knowledge and all knowledge and the arts and and really when you look at the family as a whole have interest in the arts Mm -hmm. Um, because charlie's making these little toy people out of like found objects yeah ellen used to embroider uh annie is a miniaturist yeah she makes miniature homes and and little little dioramas and stuff yeah peter uh, he's got a keyboard and a guitar, so he's got some music inclinations. Yeah. And really, you could say Steve also, his art is the the psychology. Yeah. Because th- there is an artistry to understanding the human mind, because, look, it's a mess, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can lay down breadcrumbs to follow your path, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean much. Yeah. Are you ready for me to jump into my facts, and then we can do our final thoughts on this film? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, So the facts I have, the entire interior of the Graham house Mm -hmm. was built on a soundstage in Utah 
to follow Ari Aster's shot list, basically, because they needed to be able to remove walls and ceilings to shoot rooms to look exactly like the miniatures. So it's not a real house. Ari Aster also insisted that all effects that could be done practically be done practically. Mm-hmm. So as a result, the effects team had to figure out ways to do effects that they hadn't done before. Like, how do we make a candle light itself mm-hmm. without CGI? The language for the invocation that Annie is given by Joan, we never find, we never get to see it. But apparently it is a combination of Hebrew and Enochian. The ominous song at the end of the film is actually a special rendition of a song called Zadok the Priest mm. that was written by Gregor Friedrich Handel in 1727 for the coronation of King George II. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. That is neat. So then I have a couple thoughts. Okay. During the support meeting, Annie recounts her brother's suicide at age 16, and she chalks him blaming their mom because he's like, it's mom's fault. She tried to put voices inside me and blah, 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 blah. Annie chalks that up to being just like his schizophrenia and his other mental health issues. But it's actually probably a lot more likely, given what we know now, that Ellen was attempting to conjure Paimon through her son and that caused a psychic break. It's entirely possible. So I have three main final thoughts. I have one fun fact. Oh, you have one fun fact? Go for it. Yes, uh, going back to the AMA from Reddit that Ari Aster did uh, shortly after Hereditary came out, uh, one Redditor named Step Aside Wormtail asked, uh, part, well, part of their questions, because they had a multi-part question, they asked if there was anything spooky that happened on set. Okay. And Ari replied, yes, Alex Wolf told me not to say the name of William Shakespeare's Scottish play out loud because of some superstitious theater legend. I smugly announced the name, and then one of our lights burst during the shooting of the following scene. That's why you don't say it. So, to all of our theater friends out there, you know what we're talking about. You only say the name of the play if you're performing the play. Yes. So let's get into my thoughts. They're they're brief. So let's talk about Charlie's nut allergy. Mm. If her nut allergy is this bad that it it can cause anaphylactic shock... Mm Mm-hmm. It would have been drilled into her from a very young age to ask, does this have nuts in it before eating something? If she didn't make it herself or see it be made, if she wasn't sure about it, she would have been taught to ask. Right. I know this because I have personal experience because our niece mm-hmm. uh, is allergic to peanuts. She's not, she she's not super allergic, but she's she has a bad reaction to them. And when she was four... We were actually at a funeral and one of my cousins offered her a peanut butter cookie and Chloe looked them dead in the face and said, I can't have that. I'm allergic. So like if she, if Chloe at four right. knew, I would think Charlie, even if she had some sort of de- developmental disorder, she would know to ask. Not to mention the fact those walnuts were not small pieces. You could see in the slices of cake when they kind of panned back and, and it came into better focus. Yeah. They're pretty big pieces. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how... The only thing I could think of that would blockade that, even if it was drilled in, is mm-hmm. Charlie did mention, I don't know any of these people. So it could be a, a level of social anxiety to be almost too too timid to ask. I actually have a theory Oh, when I thought about it. My theory is because 
she's currently the host for Paimon, and he's not happy with his host. Paimon just said, go for it. Paimon, and yeah, my theory is that Paimon influenced her to ignore her instincts and eat the cake anyway, knowing it would probably kill her and paving the way for him to inhabit his preferred male host, Peter. Even with demons, we got to fight the patriarchy. I, I mean, I'm still, <laughs> you know what I mean, though. Yeah. Like, that's a good theory. Yeah, no, that's a solid theory. Thank you. I like that. Last, I want to talk about Steve. <laughs> and we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but Steve has to be the worst psychiatrist. Because Annie's family, as we mentioned, has a history of severe mental health issues. And I feel like somebody who was raised, who grew up in that kind of family, like your mom has DID, your dad has depression, your brother's schizophrenic. What You probably should have been at least seeing some sort of therapist most of your life. But as far as I can tell, Annie doesn't see anybody. And I don't know if it's part of this family, just their lack of communication, because Steve and Annie are constantly lying to each other about stupid little shit. Right, because she's saying that she's going to the movies when she's going to a support group, which... Right. But... that That's just dumb. But at one... But like I mentioned earlier, at one point, she tried to light herself and their children on fire. Right. So at that point... I would have, for the safety of my children, put my spouse under some sort of psychiatric care. That would be the flashpoint? Yeah. If they weren't already in therapy for other stuff, that would be a big red sign, especially if I am a psychiatrist. Right. But he waits until literally the last possible second to say, no, my wife is sick. She needs help. One child's dead. The other's injured. Yeah. One child's dead. The other one's injured. She's talking about killing herself because of a book. And now you're like, oh, my wife is sick. You need help. N- why now? Why is why now? Why not before? Before it got to this point. The only thing I can think of on that is, you know, something that I was taught way long ago is if you hold your hand right up against your face, mm-hmm. you know, you can't see the whole hand. You have to pull it away to see the whole thing. And I think yeah. he's too close to that situation. He's too close to the situation. Yeah. And... Plus, it's his family, so it may be hard for him to put that that clinical veil. Right, and that goes back to the doctors make the worst patients kind of right. thing. So they're so they don't see the things in their own family sometimes. Right, things are bad, but they're not clinical bad. It's uh, yeah, they are, dude. Yeah, they're very clinically bad. Your wife is performing seances and trashed her studio. It's bad. But that is all I have to say on Hereditary. It's an absolutely gorgeous movie. It's a good. It, it is not my favorite of the two. I actually no. prefer Midsummer. I do too, but one thing that I didn't notice the first time I watched, and this is my only big thought on on this in general, because I have a mm-hmm. lot more notes for for the next one. Because yeah. I mean, this one's great, but this one is very people focused. Mm-hmm. You know, the symbolism, all that stuff. I think Midsummer is people focused in a different way. Yeah. It's person focused, not people focused. Yeah, but one thing that that stuck out to me from the very beginning of the movie to the very end, and you see it in various shots is after the obituary, you're seeing a miniature of their house. And it slowly zooms in to where that miniature becomes their house. Yeah. And that put in my head that this house looks big but feels oppressively small. Yeah. Like even when they're sitting around a table eating, there's all of this open space and they're sitting around this tiny table eating. And it made this big room feel oppressively small. Like like even people walking through doorways... There's a few times where people are walking through doorways and they look like they barely fit through the door. Mm-hmm. 
But and he's really good. Ari Aster in general is really good at doing stuff like that. He's good, at, really good at playing with perspective. Oh yeah, because he does that in uh, Midsummer as well. There was there's a when they first get to the village, they're having a completely normal conversation, but in the background there's this building where the roof is at uh, an off angle. It's not straight across. It's slanted. Yeah. Well. Yeah. And it and that scene made me uncomfortable. Even though the conversation they were having was totally normal. Mm. It was weird. I get that. Yeah. We'll talk about more Midsummer in just a moment. In just but. a moment. Yeah. Did you have more thoughts on Hereditary? Uh mainly just I kind of feel like there's a lot of focus on on fault and blame and and pain and loss. Very visceral human emotions mm-hmm. in this movie. And, well, blame's not an emotion, but, you know, you've got guilt and you've got trying to pass that guilt onto somebody else in the form of blame. Yeah. And not wanting to take responsibility or not thinking it's your responsibility. Because I feel like Steve doesn't feel like his it's his responsibility necessarily to hold everyone's brains together because he can do it. Why can't, why can't everybody else? Right. And then you start looking at, you know, how do people label each other and things like that. There seems to be a total breakdown of trust in the relationships, you know, between spouses, between parent and child. Yeah. Where everyone is actually in their own bubble and they just, their bubbles kind of bounce into each other. There's communication. There may or may not be understanding. And then they bounce away. And I think that's actually what is the undoing of this family Mm -hmm. is their lack of trust and communication. Nobody talks about anything. Right. Even when Annie thinks she sees her deceased mother in, in the craft room, She's going to bed and she's like, oh, I, I scared myself in the other room. And he goes, oh? She goes, it was nothing. She's like, oh, no, never mind. Like, like is she is she too afraid to be vulnerable to explain that with the loss of her mother, estranged or not, that, you know, she's feeling these things? Or is it that she's had a past experience where she's tried to express her feelings to her husband mm-hmm. and he flips a switch and becomes a psychologist or a psychiatrist? Yeah. And that may not be, I don't know. It, it just feels like, Without their clear communication, they're doomed. Yeah. And that ties into the uh, the hero undone by a tragic flaw. They're a tragic flaw, because that's talked about in, in Peter's English class. You had to be there. Watch the movie. Um, no, I get it. Uh, was that Antigone? Yeah. Yeah, they're discussing that. And that's their tragic flaws, is they don't trust each other or themselves, and they don't communicate. Yeah. That's my point I'm trying to make. No, This will be it. a hell of a pain to edit. <laughs> But I did it myself. That's my tragic flaw. That's fair. All right. So now that we've taken our quick break, I have more Sprite and I have a Gatorade. I still have coffee. You still have coffee? All right. Let's get into Midsummer. Mm, yes. Released in 2019. Yes. So the back to back, like major films for this dude. Hit after hit. I know. I, I, I prefer Midsummer, actually. If I have to pick a favorite, Midsummer, I just fucking adore. Absolutely. I will say the the most striking thing for me is most horror movies seem dark. Mm -hmm. This is the opposite of that. There's very little darkness in this movie. Yeah, short of the beginning of the film, Mm -hmm. pretty much the entire film is shot in bright daylight. Yeah. So, that's something. So let's get into the cast. Yeah. Florence Pugh is Danny. Mm -hmm. Most recently, she was uh, Yelena Belova. In Black Widow. Okay. And she's going to be in the MCU, supposedly. Fair. Basically, she's the new Black Widow, supposedly. Cool. Jack Rayner is Christian. He was Harry in Free Fire. Mm-hmm. 
Wilhelm Blomgren is Pele. Mm-hmm. Apparently, there's this show called Gosta on HBO Nordic, and he's the main character. He's, oh, cool. He's Gosta. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I apologize if I'm not. I made an effort to make sure I'm pronouncing things correctly in this write-up. So, Any of our Nordic listeners want to chime in? I, feel free. Yes, please do. I, I am of Nordic descent, but very, very small amount. That does nothing for my language comprehension. Fair. <laughs> William Jackson Harper is Josh. He was cheaty on The Good Place. Yes, he was. This is a very different character type for him. It is. Still very much... Uh, cerebral. Cerebral, clinical, scholarly kind of person, but mm-hmm. like different. Yeah. Will Poulter is Mark. He's been in a lot of stuff, but he was uh, Colin in Black Mirror Bandersnatch. Mm-hmm. Alora Torchia is Connie. She was Maggie on The Split. Mm-hmm. Archie Medekwe is Simon. He was Kai in Voyagers. And then Gunnel Fred is Siv, the leader of the commune. Yes. Uh, she was Corinne on the bridge. Oh, cool. Budget of $9 million, box office of 48 Very nice. So still not bad. Still not bad at all. Mm-hmm. So we open this film with Danny. Mm-hmm. She's a psychology student, mm-hmm. and she's kind of worried because she her sister Terry is bipolar and she got this really weird email from her sister. The email essentially said, if I can remember correctly, I can't anymore. Everything is blackness. Mom and dad are coming too. That's actually exactly what it says. Oh, is it? Yeah. Go me. So she is concerned, rightfully so, I would think. Right. And she calls her boyfriend Christian. Christian is a cultural anthropology major. I believe he's getting his PhD because they talk about his thesis off and on. And he's out with his friends and just kind of dismisses her concerns. Part of why he dismisses her concerns is because he's planning on breaking up with her anyway. Yeah, he's really not that into it. No, apparently he's been wanting to break up with her for like a year, but just keeps coming up with excuses not to. And his friends are kind of sick of it, or at least Mark is. Yeah, Mark is like, look, you just need to break it off. Just do it. Yeah, we're going to be going to Sweden this summer, and there's going to be all these hot European chicks. Just fucking do it. So he just kind of dismisses Danny's concerns, saying, you know, she does this all the time. You need to stop being a doormat for your sister. It's it's no big deal. It's probably nothing. He even starts in with this. You said it yourself that she does. You, know, you said he, you said she does this all the time. Yeah. So he's already turning her words on her. The gaslighting he does in this film off and on is ridiculous. It yeah. really pisses me off. And I don't. I'm not sure why if she's this concerned, she doesn't call. She sent emails to her well, sister. I she could, well, she does try calling her parents, and it goes to the to the answering machine. They don't they don't pick up. Mm-hmm. But if you're if you're this concerned, I would think you would be able to call 911 or the local police and request a wellness check. Yeah. Just be like, hey, I got this email from my sister and she's bipolar and now my parents aren't answering the phone and she's not replying. Can you please do a wellness check? Well, regardless of diagnosis, I would say an email like that would be ominous enough. If it was a loved one, I would be like, hey, mm-hmm. or even a friend. If a friend sent that, you know, some sometimes people put cryptic stuff on social media and I'm, you know, sometimes they're just trying to get attention. But other times it's it is legitimate. It is a legitimate yeah. cry for help. You know, so if, if you're close to them and you care, 
you know, they might be pissed at you later because they're like, why were the police at my house with an ambulance? It's like, well, because... Until there's another service that we can call to do wellness checks on people, then unfortunately the police are who we have to call. Yeah. Because unfortunately there's not like a... There's not an emergency social work psychiatric care group that you can call to do a wellness check instead. Not in this country. Not in... Well, yeah. I mean, some countries might Some countries might, but America does not, unfortunately. So pretty soon, Christian gets another phone call from Danny, and his friends are like, oh, is that her again? Well, Mark. Mark is like, oh, is that her again? Just ignore her. And he answers the phone, and she is... She's beside herself. She's beside herself. She is sobbing and just keeps yelling, no, no, no. Oh, no. And it's because her sister has killed herself and their parents via carbon monoxide poisoning. Grief-stricken. Well, yes, that too. She's a lot of things. Her sister went all out with that carbon monoxide poisoning too, by the way. Both cars. Yeah. That had to have taken some kind of planning. Yeah. So it's it's tough. It's a tough opening scene. But once, once again, we're opening with strong emotions, grief, mm-hmm. loss. That's kind of Ari Aster's thing. Well, because most people can connect in some way, shape, or form to some sort of grief or loss. Right. So several months later, we're getting into summer and Danny and Christian are still together because, of course, Christian can't break up with her now because her entire fucking family just died. And he would he feels like he would look like just a total asshole. Yeah. And he's hoping that she'll just kind of fade off, I guess. Well, they go to this party and she finds out that he and his friends in like two weeks are leaving for Sweden. Uh, <laughs> which which is sudden news to her because she has no idea. Yeah. So one of Christian's friends is this Swedish guy named Pele, who is just the sweetest thing. I love him. Mm-hmm. But he has invited Christian, Josh and Mark to come back with him to Sweden to his village of Horga for this midsummer festival. They have some sort of, from what I can tell, they have some sort of midsummer festival every year. But this one is special and it only happens every 90 years. Yeah. So this is the first time it's happened in Pele's lifetime and he wants to bring his friends to see it. Yeah, it's a once in a lifetime event. Right. Especially since Christian and Josh are both cultural anthropology majors. And Josh is specifically doing his dissertation on midsummer festivals in Europe. Because he's talking about how after he's done in Sweden, he's going to be going to Germany and England also. Mm -hmm. Christian had not told her because he was planning on breaking up with her before he left. Because he sucks. Christian sucks, you guys. I, he's... (sighs) Like, like Mark is generic suck. It's Mark, right? That, Mark, yeah. yeah. Mark, Mark is... Mark generically sucks. Like, he's he's that friend that embarrasses you when they're like, oh, he's one of your friends when you're at a party. Mm-hmm. And you want to, you really want to be like, no, I don't know that guy. But you do because you gave him a ride there. Mark is that friend that I feel like every guy has in their 20s that they don't regret losing touch with later. Yeah, yeah. There's that one guy that you party with when you're in your late teens, early 20s, but then when you get to you're like in your 30s and you're trying to be a responsible adult, you don't want that person around anymore. Because That's they're, Mark. they're still stuck in that, that the, In mode. that party mindset. They're yeah. still going to parties and getting drunk. They're still... Like, when you're in your 30s, going to a party and getting drunk every once in a while, as long as you're safe about it, is fine. But it's not an all-the-time thing like it is like it can be in your 20s. Right. Yeah. 
But Mark is one of those people that keeps the party going or wants to keep the party going for a long time. Yeah. And is also just kind of a shitty person. Because, like, when it comes to how they treat Danny, Christian is, you know, gaslights her and generally seems to not really care about her. I feel like he doesn't want to be seen as the bad guy in the relationship. Yeah. Mark is openly hostile towards her. And then Josh is just kind of indifferent to anybody. He doesn't really care about anybody. He just cares about his thesis. Right, because that's his focus. He's like, look, this is what I am here for. I don't care about This is about what your I've bullshit. been working towards for years. I don't care about anything else. So Christian, because she found out, invites her to come with them, thinking, well, she won't say yes. Right. But she does. <laughs> and the only person excited about it is Pele. Is Pele, because he didn't... Again, oh my god, y'all. Pele is just such the sweetest... He's the only person in this film who seems to genuinely, of the main characters, he's the only person who seems to genuinely give a shit about Danny and how she's doing. He engages with every human he comes into contact with. He listens. Mm -hmm. He pays attention. Yeah. He remembers. You know, because he even brings up, he's like, you know, I'm sorry to bring this up, but, you know, how are you doing? Like, how are you doing? Are you okay? Like, I didn't, yeah. Because you lost your parents and, you know, he relates to her that, you know, he lost his parents too. And he, he knows... Something of that. Yeah, he knows what it's like to lose your family. Yeah. To an extent. To an extent. So she does agree to go with them. Because of course, why not? Why the fuck not? Right. And so they arrive in, in Horga, which is like a four hour drive from, they don't say where they fly into in Sweden. I knew, it's. I'm pretty sure it was Stockholm. No, because they said they weren't. Cause, oh, that, that's right. Because Mark were... was like, aren't we going to at least go to Stockholm? And, and Pele's like, no, it's in the opposite direction right, of where right. we're going. So they get to Horga. And it's this really beautiful. It's like out in the middle of nowhere in this gorgeous forest. There's these fields of wild. It's very pretty. Yeah, it's gorgeous. It's in rural Helsingland. I got the pronunciation right, I think. Go me. <laughs> And they meet his uh, communal brother, Ingmar. Yes. And Ingmar has also brought guests. Yes. He's brought uh, Londoners, Simon and Connie. Yeah, they met a couple months ago and they're engaged. Yes, because uh, Ingmar met Connie first. Mm-hmm. And they never really say this, but this is one. They never really say, but what is, what is assumed is that Ingmar was romantically interested in Connie. But before he got a chance to do anything about those feelings, she met Simon and they started dating and then they got engaged. So. And wasn't it Ingmar that had agreed to officiate their wedding? Simon was joking about asking him to do it. Oh, okay. Which, oh, well, if he was joking about that, that that takes that whole comment in a much more. It super does. It's like, dude, do you really have. I mean, Simon and Connie may not even be fully even aware that Ingmar had. I don't think they are. Had affections for, for Connie, but that just drives mm-hmm. that dagger between the ribs and just turns it. Yeah, it really does. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. So upon arrival, I don't know why this is what they do when they show up, but they all decide to do mushrooms. <laughs> yeah, because they still have a truck to go to b- before they get to the actual village proper. Yeah, they, they have to walk. There's like a place where they just kind of park and then they hang out and chill. I guess it's like where people are meeting up and grouping up before they actually go. Yeah, before everyone actually walks into the place together. Because the way that this commune works is once you reach between the ages of 18 and 36, you do what Pele calls your pilgrimage, 
where you go out into, you leave the commune and go out into the wider world. Yeah. And so Pele and Ingmar and a bunch of other people are just now coming back from their pilgrimages. Right. And I mean, there's, they'd still be open to, to going back out since, I mean, they're not 36 yet. I don't know. Maybe. As far as I, as far as I can tell, you do this pilgrimage mate once oh. and then once you're done, you're done. Okay. Kind of similar to um, possibly like Room Springa for, mm. for the Amish communities. Yeah, but that that has a lot of con- connotations of like, you know, going free of restrictions and things like that. Where it Partying doesn't... and experiencing the, the, the wider world before dedicating yourself to... Honestly, it reminds me more of like uh, the pilgrimage that Quarians take from Mass Effect. Okay. <laughs> well, because... because they, I love how I'm like, yeah, it's probably like what the Amish do, and you're like video games, though. Well, because they're <laughs> culturally, you know, they're they're on this flotilla mm-hmm. in space, and you know, when they come of age, they they leave the flotilla, and they don't come back until they have either brought something tangible or intangible of significance back to the flotilla. Basically, go do great and come back. Okay, fair. So yeah, they they all show up and they do mushrooms. Danny does not have a good trip. Uh, I mean, I, well, because she's also she's also on Anavan, mm-hmm. which is it's something that can be prescribed instead of Xanax to deal with anxiety. Right, because of the longer duration. Yeah, you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, it lasts longer. Um, I could not find anything that said you shouldn't do psychedelics while also on Anavan. Um, some mental illnesses are being treated with like psychedelics. Yeah, psilocybin or LSD. There, yeah. are, there are clinical trials being taking place, but I don't think any clinical trials are saying, "Okay, now let's see what we can mix up in this shaker." And- yeah, let's see what happens if you take Prozac and then do shrooms. No, that's not a thing. That's happening. So I couldn't find anything that said it was a good, a good or a bad idea. I feel like it would probably be a bad idea, but. That's well, just me. And I would say anytime you're doing anything psychotropic, your general state of mind, like your overall mental wellness, plays a big factor in how it gets directed. Mm-hmm. I mean, granted, you can treat, you know, depression and anxiety and things like that with various psychotropics, but, you know, it's it depends on where you aim it. Yeah. Sorry. No, you're fine. So once they get to the commune, Horga, they kind of get a little bit of an opportunity to settle in. And the next day is the first day of the festival. Yeah, it's a nine-day festival. It's a nine-day festival. And the group witnesses Atastupa. Yes. So Atastupa is, I'm not sure if this is something that was actually done. I didn't have time to go into it a super lot. But Antistupa is a phrase used for precipices, like cliff over cliff edges and stuff mm-hmm. in uh, Norway and other Scandinavian, th- Scandinavian countries. countries where they performed supposedly a form of ritual senicide. Senicide being the killing of elderly people, because specifically what the Horga do is once you reach the age of 72, that's the end of your life cycle. And so you do this Adestupa rit- ritual where you essentially kill yourself by jumping off of this cliff. And if you don't die... <laughs> there's the, someone on the ground with a mallet. There's someone on the ground with a mallet to 
finish the job, essentially. I appreciate that they had multiple people take turns with the mallet. So not one, there's not one person that has to feel bad about it. Right. So they can, they can share the experience. There's a lot of shared experience going on. And Mm -hmm. I think that actually rolls into the use of psychotropics. Yeah. Because they're one big community. Uh, Everybody, everybody chips in. Everybody has a, has a job. Children aren't raised by just their two parents. They're raised by the community as as a whole. If you're hurting, I am hurting. Yeah, exactly. We work together to to heal it. Yeah. The general concepts, I'm fairly on board with. Yeah. There's some, there a lot of, a lot of the stuff. I'm like, okay, that actually seems kind of nice. Not this part necessarily i'm not opposed to it well here's the thing and that we had a we actually had to pause the movie because we were having a discussion about it um if you're going to kill yourself by jumping off a cliff onto some rocks below not legitimate advice folks. no no this is hypothetical because one the first person that does it she falls forward yeah she falls forward she lands on her face (laughs) and dies instantly yeah. Whereas the other guy just kind of s- steps off and kind goes... Kind of a pencil dive. Yeah, goes straight down. And that ends exactly the way you would expect it to. Yeah, so he survives and just kind of fucks up his leg. Probably his back also. His leg is not in a happy place. Yeah. And then the commune members, because they do this shared feeling thing, are like mimicking his cries of pain before those four other people go and take turns smashing his skull in with a mallet. And to an outside observer, you know, you might think, oh, are they are they mocking him? Or it's 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 not a negative mocking. It's it's a sharing saying, yeah, we see you're in pain. We're sharing your pain. We're you know, we're we're with you. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, because Josh is a good cultural anthropology student, when they were at he was asking the night before what the first ritual is and Pele told him at a stupa, Josh knew what that was. And he's like, wait, you're going to do this for real? He's like, really? And Pele just doesn't say anything. And Christian is like, do you know what that is? And Josh is just like, what? Danny's like, is it scary? And he's like, meh. And doesn't really say anything. Which really also shows who the better cultural anthropologist is. Really? Yeah. (laughs) And unfortunately, because this, what was going to happen wasn't really explained. To any of the outsiders. well, Well, Josh knew. Mark's not there because he went to, he went to go take a nap. But... Simon and Connie had no fucking clue, and they are not chill about it in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> I believe the general expression repeated about 15 to 20 times is, that is fucked. This is fucked. You guys are all fucked. This is fucking fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. It really exemplifies the variety of uses of that word. Yeah. And one of the things that I that I like about this exchange, well, this whole situation, because Siv, the le- this, who I believe to be like a spiritual leader... Yeah. Of the group. Kind of the group matriarch. Yeah. She kind of explains, you know, it's this is what we do in our culture. You have a life cycle uh, from when you're born to when you're 18. They, Paley explains it like seasons. Yeah. So when you're born to when you're 18 is basically your spring. Mm-hmm. 18 to 36, you're considered a young adult and that's your summer. 36 to 54, I think, is fall. And that's when you're like wor- a worker. Yes, to 54. Okay. And then 54 to 72 is when you're like an elder. And then at 72, that's the end of your cycle and you die. And Siv even explains that woman that killed her, that, you know, committed Atastupa, she gave her life as a gift and her name is going to be passed on to this child that's not born yet. Yeah. 
So they're like, we don't let ourselves suffer and get sick and become, you know, useless and then just die. We give our lives freely as a gift to the members of the community. And those who who perform at the stupa are then remembered in the name of that child who is raised. Right. So so even you have, yes, you know, your your namesake was a great mentor to me or you know you could you could have this whole lineage of names outside of just genealogy yeah and and i think i can't remember if it's either it's either christian or josh that says you know we stick our elderly in nursing homes they probably think that's barbaric yeah and i i would agree with that honestly i mean i've seen some facilities that are very very nice but i've also seen tons of news articles that just turn my stomach so yeah yeah, i'm i'm there with it so Christian decides he's going to write his thesis on the Horga. Despite knowing full well that Josh has been planning on doing his thesis on the Horga's midsummer ritual for months. Yeah. And this is honestly one of the few times we show any real emotion from Josh. And he is just pissed. We also get to see that Danny is not the only person that Christian gaslights. Yeah, Christian really kind of shows his true colors here and it makes me feel like maybe he's someone who was born raised and currently lives in a life of general privilege because he doesn't really seem to have much of an aim and and it really shows that you know he just decides you know on what day two yeah because he had no idea going to sweden what his dissertation was going to be on still no plans and he's like I guess I'm going to do this. Yeah, yeah. Josh is like, well, that's pretty fucked up. And uh, why would you do that? And Christian is just like, well, if you want to collaborate, we can. It's like, oh, thanks for your permission oh, gee, to thank collaborate. You for giving yeah. how magnanimous of you. Fucking douchebag. So Danny, in the meantime, is kind of because of her family history and the trauma that she suffered is further traumatized by witnessing this Atastupa. And she wants to go. She's like, I need to leave. I can't be here anymore. Uh, but Pele convinces her to stay. Yeah. And it's actually a really sweet exchange. Mm-hmm. Because he talks about how he knows what it's like to be an orphan. Yes. And that he was lucky. Unlike her, he was very lucky because he still has a family. Because basically the... The commune is one big family. Right. The way he explains it, he's, he's like, you know, I I also lost my parents. I lost mm-hmm. them in a fire. And while I was an orphan, I never had to really... I, I never felt feel, lost. Feel, yeah, I never felt yeah. alone because I've always been held because the community held me. Yeah, and, and then I love he asks, do you feel held by Christian? Do you feel loved by him? Uh, and I'm just like, no, she doesn't. Will you please hold her, Pele? Yes. <laughs> yes. Please, she needs you, my dude. <laughs> so he convinces her to stay. Connie, however, she and Simon have decided they don't want to be here anymore. And so she wants to leave. She goes to get her and Simon's stuff, but then she can't find Simon. And a member of the commune tells her, oh, he left. The truck to take him to the station only has enough room for two people. So he left and he's going to send the truck back for you in a little while. So why don't you come with me and I'll give you somewhere to wait and we can talk about this. And then when the truck comes back, you can leave. Mm-hmm. And that's the last we see of Connie. Yes. Until the end of the film. And the days kind of run together because there's, there's, there's this whole midnight sun. Yeah. The sun just kind of dips a bit. Yeah. So the two bodies of the 
seniors that committed ritual suicide are burned on a bonfire and then the ashes are put inside this felled tree that's yes. kind of off to the side. They're, they're elder tree. Uh, it's basically their ancestral tree. Mm-hmm. Um, the ashes of everyone from the commune, as far as I can tell, that's where the ashes go. Yeah. And Mark, not knowing that this tree is special and or not caring. asking because he's an asshole, urinates on the ancestral tree. And even when he's confronted about this, when he's told you just basically pissed on their ancestors ashes he says so what yeah it's not a great time to no be him. it is not later on he is lured away by this girl inga that he thought was really cute mm-hmm. and we don't see him again for a while yeah technically let's just say he has a bit of an out-of-body experience <laughs> yeah so josh and christian have both asked the the horga elders for permission to do their dissertations on stuff in the community And they're basically told, yeah, it's fine, but you can't use any names and you can't say where we are. And Josh is being shown like their sacred texts Mm -hmm. and he wants to take pictures and is told absolutely not. No. So he decides he's going to sneak in to where those sacred texts are stored and take pictures of them anyway, despite being told, no, you can't. And someone wearing Mark's face as a mask, because originally he thinks it's Mark, and then he realizes something's off. Mm -hmm. And that's when the dude bludgeons him and drags him off. Yeah. So again, because time is weird, as far as I know, the next day is the last day of the festival. Even though it's nine days. Well, because we don't know when one day starts and the next day. Right. Because of the way the, the sun is weird. Not the sun is weird. You know what I mean. It's hard to tell one day from the other because the, the the sun is up for so long. Yeah, I had a similar experience in Alaska where like 36 hours, I spent a, 36 hours in a bar. Yeah. Not realizing it. So as far as I can tell, this is the last day of the festival. It could not be, but I would think this would be like the whole thing with the May Queen and everything. I think that would, should, would probably be the last day. Either the last day or the second to last day, something like yeah. that. So Danny and Christian are the only two tourists left. <laughs> They're informed that uh, Mark and Josh have disappeared and one of the sacred texts is missing. And I think that's probably just a ruse that the the sacred text being missing. Because we know full well Mark is dead and Josh probably is too. So there's no way that one of the texts is actually missing because no one would have taken it. It sure as shit puts Christian on the defensive and oh my god, and ebbs him back on trying to be pushy about we're shit. We're not. we I'm not friends with them. I don't. I don't own that action. I didn't do that. We have no idea. The, the we look, don't condone. The look on Pele's face, where he's like, "You're this quick to disown your your good friends." I know, and even Danny's like, "Dude, really?" Which I'm not sure why you're surprised, Danny. Yeah, I think at that point he was gaslighting himself. Right, basically. I just. We just met them. Yeah. Uh, so Danny is given some Horga clothing. She's given this, this, because they have like this, these, uh, like white linen, like the women wear these peasant dresses and the guys are wearing like linen pants and shirts and, uh, except for some of the elders are wearing like longer frocks. Yeah. And, and they're made specifically for this festival. Mm-hmm. And she takes some hallucinogenic tea. Because and, of course. Well, yeah, you need it. It's for the, for the ritual. Yeah. You should come. This is not that. No, it's not. 
she participates in the Maypole dance competition because basically they have this competition where all of the women, I'm not sure if there's like an age, I'm assuming it's the women bet- that are in that young, that young adult phase that are between the ages of um, 18 to 36. 18 to 36. I'm yeah. assuming it's those women. Yeah, I didn't see any like 65 year olds in that. No, there's the old, there's the older woman who is kind of like officiating basically. Right. So I think it's all of the women between the ages of 18 and 36. They dance around this maypole. And whoever lasts the longest is awarded for her stamina by being named the May Queen. Yes. And the May Queen then is it's a seat of honor. And you get to go and like bless the fields and the crops and the livestock and all the other stuff. There's this whole carriage ride thing. The, being... There's this cool like person led carriage. That's fucking cool. Yeah. You get like a big dress made of flowers. It's, it's a whole thing and it looks really interesting. Oh, by the way, the flowers breathe on the hallucinogens. So. Well, yeah, she sees the flowers as breathing. Well, we, we see a bit of that too. And it's well, a, yeah. Cause with, you know, it, it's one of those things where it's like, you forget that they're breathing. And then you look at like one particular flower and you're like, Oh, Oh, Hi. Flower. Yeah. Mm. So Danny wins. Yeah. And is named May Queen and unbeknownst to her is accepted as a new member of the Horga community. Yeah. Which they've kind of been wel- welcoming her this whole time. She, they, she clearly needs held. Yeah. She needs to be held. She needs people. And because there's one time where she's just kind of walking by and, and one of the women that Pele had introduced her to is like, hey, do you want to come help us make meat pies? Yeah. And she's like, hey, do you want to do this? And they're like, just like, ex- yeah, like, they're very welcoming to her. And and it's not like, hey, your woman, come make food. It's, hey, you look like you're bored or lost. Do you want... There's a clear sense of community in that cookhouse. Oh, yeah. the thing. And that's, when you get a group of women like that, that have grown up together, like, you, you form, people have got certain jobs where, oh, you're really good at dicing vegetables. You dice the vegetables, I'll make the crust. And when, everybody has the thing that they're good at that they do and you all work together to make a meal and it's awesome. Yeah. I love it. I love having that happen. So meanwhile, Christian is also drugged. <laughs> reluctantly. Re- well, yeah, kind of reluctantly. And he participates in a sex ritual with this girl, Maya. Well, I, w- I want to add first that he's told that... Siv tells him Maya's interested in him. Yeah, th- he's actually brought into a room where he sits and waits. And then he moves into another room that's just stark with two chairs. And like drawings all over the walls. Yeah. And I'm like, this is a very specific place. And it wasn't until I saw the room well, on the door. Because that's Siv's house. Well, the rune on the door specifically, and the one associated with her, is a rune associated with communication. Okay, and, that and makes talking. sense. Yeah. But Maya, since he showed up, has basically had her eye on him. She's recently been given permission to have sex. Yeah, she, she's and of so, age. Yeah. yeah. So she wants to mate with Christian and have a baby and bring new blood into the community. Because that's one of the things that they do to prevent inbreeding is... Every once in a while, they will bring in new people. Right. Because that's also what Pele is trying to do with Danny. And probably what Ingmar would have done with Connie had he been given the opportunity. But that didn't happen. Right. So during this ritual, they are... Maya's on like this bed of flowers. (laughs) 
And there's all these older naked women, like in a half circle watching. Yeah, like a dozen of them. And I'm curious why those women in particular are there. I kind of got to looking at their at them. And most of them are older matriarchal women have, that have stretch marks and stuff. So I'm wondering if those are the women in the community that have given birth. Yeah. So they're there as like a good luck thing to incur to maybe add luck to the possibility of her getting pregnant. Yes. Fertility abound. Yeah. But they also, because of the shared experience thing, they're like mimicking her moans and um, they're touching Christian. There's one older lady that comes forward is like pushing on his ass. It's so awkward. And Maya's just like, just finish, just finish. (laughs) And honestly, the way she's moaning and stuff, I was, I'm watching this and I'm like, there is no way Christian is that good in bed. I think those moans were to help encourage Christian to finish. Because he because well, he strikes me as a very selfish lover. Yeah. He is not the kind of person that makes sure you get your O face first. Yeah, he basically just walked up and said, oh, this goes there. This goes there. Do it. Mer. And still, still needed a push start to get going. To finish, yeah. Or, yeah, to finish. Uh, so Danny has just gotten back from doing her some of her May Queen duties. Yes. And she discovers this scene and has a panic attack. Well, she hears the moans and she's like, what's over there? And she's like, and she's one of the women is like, that's not for us, <laughs> <laughs> which is code for look. You don't really want to see that. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I, I love she runs off. She runs into the communal home where all the young people live and all of the former May Queens that are there. They kind of surround her and start mimicking her cries Mm-hmm. And it's this nice communal grieving thing. That so just seems powerful. Like it is, yeah. So after the ritual, Christian kind of comes to and realizes what he's done and just kind of runs buck naked out of the temple. It's so brilliant. He sees Josh's leg planted in a flower bed. <laughs> and then he goes into this shed. Dude, that's not how you get fruit by the foot. No. And then he goes into the shed and sees Simon's body hanging from the ceiling and he's been turned into a blood eagle. Yes. And then with flowers. And then in his Chris- eyes. Yes. And then Christian is paralyzed. Now I have a quick thing about blood eagles. Yes. If you do not know what a blood eagle is, it is a supposed Viking ritual in which an incision is made in the back and then you remove the ribs and then you, take the lungs and remove them and lay them out on the back. And it kind of looks like wings. Now it is possible that blood eagles aren't something that was ever really done. Right. There is actually a prevailing theory that they were invented to kind of spice up some of their epic sagas. And then some Christians heard about it and they just ran with it to try and make Vikings more scary. Seems legit. Yeah. So there's, there's no historical evidence of it ever actually being done. All right. Now we get to the big reveal. Mm-hmm. So this ritual that takes place every 90 years is for the Horga to purge their commune of evil. And to do this, they offer up nine human sacrifices. Four of them have to be outsiders and four of them have to be commune members. And then as May Queen, Danny gets to choose the last one. And she can choose between Christian or just some random Horga guy. Who volunteered. Who volunteered. Well, All- no, he's chosen at random. Oh, right. He's chosen at random. Because they have like a bingo thing. But with- the, the four from Horga volunteer. Yeah, because there's the two elderly people and then uh, Ingmar and Ulf volunteer. Right. 
So of course she chooses Christian, because why the fuck not? Why would you choose some random guy you don't know over your douchebag gaslighting boyfriend who's been cheating on you? Mm. Now, Christian is paralyzed. In a wheelchair. But he is still alive and conscious. And he is stuffed into the body of a brown bear. Yes. He and the other sacrifices, including uh, we finally see what happened to Connie. And it looks like she has been drowned because her co- her corpse is kind of is wet and kind of bloated. Yeah. Uh, and they're placed into this yellow triangular wooden temple. Which is referenced earlier. And it's just, you know, that's that's something for the ceremony, but it's sacred. and you just Yeah, don't we don't go there. And then the temple's lit on fire. Mm-hmm. As the commune members do their shared experience thing again, they start to mimic the cries of... Ingmar and... Well, we don't know if Ingmar's screaming. We know Ulf is. Yeah, we know Ulf is. And so they start to mimic his cries of pain. Danny just kind of looks on in shock, but then she starts to smile. She's free. And I know a lot of people see her smiling at the end as her, like, succumbing to madness... But I see that scene and I just think of that Lucille Bluth gif where she goes, good for her. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know what? Yeah. I don't think she's succumbing to madness. I, I feel like the rest of the world's weight has been lifted off her shoulders and she's now feeling held. Yeah. So I have a couple of facts about this film and then we'll get into our thoughts. Do okay. You, is that cool? Yeah. So the original cut of the film got an NC-17 by the MPAA. Well, because they're afraid of penises and stuff. Well, I don't know why. So 30 minutes was cut mm. from the final film, due to, mainly due to that. However, there is a director's cut Ooh. that I want, because the director's cut has that 30 minutes of footage restored. Nice. So I want it. William Jackson Harper is the only American actor in the film. Huh. Because Jack Rayner, he was born in Colorado, but he's Irish. Mm-hmm. Florence Pugh is English, and so is Will Poulter. And then all of the supporting actors are either Swedish, British, or Hungarian. Wow. Yeah. And the last fun fact I have about this film is my favorite fun fact. This is one of my favorite fun facts ever, actually. So I mentioned that this is my preferred Ari Aster film. Mm -hmm. Do you know who else is a huge fan of this movie? Who? Ariana Grande. Nice. Yeah. She called it one of her favorite films of 2019. And she actually tried to buy the may queen gown nice a24 did an auction did a charity auction where they auctioned off different props and stuff from their films and one of the things they auctioned off was uh that dress which was made from ten thousand silk flowers wow yeah ariana grande bid on it but she didn't get it it actually ended up being purchased by the academy museum of motion pictures for sixty five thousand dollars wow i know i have a fun fact what's your fun fact well we don't really talk much about people's last names in movies, mm-hmm. but Danny's last name struck me because I've, I've learned Ari Aster doesn't put symbols or mythos or anything in there without Things aren't reason. random in his films. They, yeah, there's They're nothing. purposeful. Someone who spends months preparing for a movie before it ever starts shooting. Yeah. Like years preparing. Yeah. So Danny's last name is Ardor. Mm-hmm. It means enthusiasm or passion. Okay. And it seems like she's... Without that. Until she... Until she gets to Horga. Yeah. So I just thought that was kind of a neat thing. Yeah. So my my main thought... I have a couple main thoughts on this. Mainly just two. So I mentioned... I'm sure several times already I've said... I've talked about how much I hate Christian. He's just... 
he does this insane gaslighting on Danny that in my mind borderlines on abusive. Oh yeah. Because there are several times throughout the film that she has every right to be upset with him, but he turns it around to the point that she blames herself and starts apologizing to him. Yeah. I'm sorry. I should have reminded you it was my birthday. Yeah. He forgot it was my birthday, but uh, I forgot to remind him. We were watching that scene and I'm like, David has never needed to be reminded of when my birthday is. And I'm not even that great with dates. No, but you know when my birthday is. You at least know the month. Yeah. And I just... And then when she finds out he's planning on leaving for Sweden in two weeks, he's like, well, I told you. And she's like, no, you said it would be nice to go to Sweden. You didn't say you were going. Right. And he ends up turning that around on her, too, to where she's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, please don't leave. And it's 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 clearly a very emotionally abusive relationship. So... I end up not feeling bad for what ends up happening to him because fuck him. And then my last thought is about Horga. Mm-hmm. Horga actually seems for the most part to be pretty nice. Yeah. Like there are some things I would be sad to lose like air conditioning and the internet, but the simplicity of the lifestyle and having people be there for you, no matter what, Everyone contributes. Everybody takes responsibility for the children. It's, it's just not, it just seems nice. And I feel like Horga is going to be really good for Danny. I mean, it already is because she's lost everything. She hasn't been able to properly grieve because her boyfriend sucks and is a selfish piece of shit. But the, I mean, the second she gets there, they're including her. Even before Pele is trying to include her. Yeah. And they're making her feel welcome. They're trying to, they're explaining things to her and answering her questions. They're inviting her to participate in their activities. I can guarantee you, Pele is a better lover. Probably. There, I mean, even when she sees Christian having that sex witch role with Maya, the other women grieve with her because they understand, yeah, he sucks. But to have that kind of betrayal is hard. Especially yeah. when you've been going through so much. That's just one more piece of shit on a shit keg. Exactly. So that's my, those are my thoughts. That's, that's all I've got. Uh, one thing I wanted to bring up just briefly mm-hmm. is I love the cultural interweaving and just building mm-hmm. that's, that's in it specifically with Maya. Because Maya, she, she put some of her pubic hairs in a meat pie for Christian. And some of her menstrual blood in his lemonade. Which, yes, it's, it sounds bizarre. Yeah. However, there there are other cultures where that's something that may happen. It's essentially a love spell. Yeah. I was actually warned on base when I was stationed in Japan to be wary of chocolates that were homemade by potential women who wanted to date me. Because there may be menstrual blood and it may not be safe to eat. Yeah. And I'm like, dude, that's the last thing I'm worried about right now. Still, though. Right. But they're like, you know, for health reasons, just be aware. This is this is a thing that you may run into. It's not like widespread. It's not like all people in this country. It's just... When I say I put my blood, sweat, and tears into your meal, I, I don't mean it literally. Right. <laughs> but that's even paired with a hand-carved Wunjo rune, which is slipped under Christian's bed, which is basically... It's explained as a love rune. It generally invokes uh, pleasure or joy. Yeah. So... You know, all of these things just knit together. And you can tell that there is some sort of blood, presumably. I mean, if we're looking at pubic hair, we're probably thinking menstrual blood as well. 
just because with everybody's lemonade, only everybody one person's got strawberry lemonade. I say everybody else has lemonade. Christian has grapefruit juice. <laughs> <laughs> And it's no good. one says a thing about it. No, it quite clearly looks very different. Although I, Christian does complain about the the like the pubic hair. Well, well, he's like, it, gross. It was uh, Mark. He's like, is that a pube? He's like, it's a hair. It's it's just a hair. And he's like, yeah, pubic hair. But it just little nuances like that that yeah. I don't see a lot of. That, I, don't, I don't see that very often. Well, and that's one of the things I like. Ab- yeah, I like that about Ari Aster's film so far is because he clearly does the research. He clearly does the work. And the fact that these movies came out a year apart is a, is so impressive to me. Because these are the, the kind of work that goes into these films. This is the kind of thing I would expect a director to make a movie like this every five years. Right. I was going to say three fast five yeah i would not expect something with this much detail to be made back to back no no way it's it's just mind-blowing and my i don't wear hats but if i did it would be off to him yeah absolutely so if ari aster invites you on a trip stick to his schedule (laughs) yeah he's he probably has like we're gonna go here here i mean i'm i'm i plan vacations to an extent but he probably plans them even more. Then again, maybe he only does that for movies and he's like, no, everything in my life is so planned. I'm taking a month. I'll be back in July. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> you know, I don't know. That might be freeing. Maybe. I'm not going to presume. So I think that's going to do it for us this week. Yeah. If you would like to hit us up on the socials or send us an email, you can go to our website at h2horrorcast.com. Mm-hmm. There is also blog posts on there, uh, direct links to episodes, and there's also a link to our Patreon. There is. We are uh, patreon.com slash h2horrorcast. You can support us for as little as a dollar a month. Thank you to current patrons, Lizzie, Gray, and my mom. Mm-hmm. We love you all. Yes, thank you. If you cannot support us financially, uh, we totally get it. Yeah. If you want to support us another way, you can rate us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere that rating podcasts is available. Uh, you can also recommend us to friends. Yeah. I I had somebody on Twitter last week that was looking for podcast recommendations, and I shot them our link, and then I got notifications because they sent it to a friend. Oh, wow. And were like, hey, this seems like it'd be something that would be up your alley. And she was like, yeah, that totally seems cool. I'll check it out. I actually got blown away. Um, I commented on our friend Lucas's thing on, on socials, and uh, one of his friends said, hey, I listened to I your listen podcast. Your, yeah, and I And it, it was like... Is this like fan mail? <laughs> it's kind of neat to, to know that there are people that we don't know personally that listen to us. It's, it's neat. Yeah. Anyway, that is going to do it for us. We are gearing up for October and we're going to do some a little bit different things in October. But hopefully you enjoy them. Yeah. The movies that you will need to check out for next week's episode. Uh, we're doing creature features. So you will need to watch. If you want to watch before you listen, you need to watch Tremors and The Mist. Yes. So there you go. You all have your assignments. There you are. Or just come in and be surprised. Yeah, do you do you. I'm not going to judge. So until next time, I'm Tia. And I'm still David. And stay spooky, friends. But music for this episode is Save Us Now by Shane Ivers. Our artwork is by Catherine Nixon. <laughs>